2: Hardee's signature Frisco burger and Frisco breakfast sandwich are the kind of goodness people drive across town for. Classic favorites on a toasted sourdough bun. Only at Hardee's. Goodness in the making. Participation may vary. Impact of influence. The tragic story of a powerful South Carolina family and the mysterious deaths that they are linked to. My friend Matt Harris and Seton Tucker here and so grateful that you're listening. We always, always, always appreciate your questions, thoughts, insights, and how we can be better. And you can reach us where, Seton?
0: You can reach us on Facebook at Murdoch Podcast or on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com.
2: And this week, the week of April 25th, Fitz News had... Really uh, interesting findings and information they found out explained.
0: explain. Yeah, they, they really broke it this week. So there were some reports about some high-velocity impact spatter, which was found on Alec Murdoch's shirt, which tied him to the deaths of Maggie and Paul.
2: So I ended up on Nancy Grace the other day on her show and talking about some of the things that Fitz News discovered, and kudos to them. And I was on with a guy who was— really breaking it down, and I thought it'd be great to have our show to break it down, not only the high-velocity impact spatter, but a lot of aspects of this case. His name is Bobby Chacon, and Bobby graduated from law school, and he got his law degree, and then he went on to work in the FBI for many years, worked with uh, organized crime. He also investigated everything from kidnapping and bank robberies to violent drug syndicates, And eventually went into forensics, which is another reason to have him on. Started the FBI's underwater forensics program. We'll talk a little bit about later. And uh, was with the FBI in Iraq for a couple of tours. And in 2015, Bobby became the technical advisor on criminal minds beyond borders. Uh, After Beyond Borders was canceled, Chacon moved over to the main Criminal Minds for season 14, working full-time in the writer's room as a writer's consultant. And Chacon wrote episode 1506 with Criminal Minds writer-producer and real-life FBI profiler Jim Clemente. And he's now going to be working on Crime Farm for HBO Max and some other shows that are coming up. And he's working on a couple of pilots. So that's a long intro because it's well-deserving. Very interesting man. It's uh, Bobby Chacon. Hi, Bobby. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So there was a report out this week in Fitz News that there was high velocity impact spatter on Alec Murdoch's shirt. What is high velocity impact spatter?
1: So high velocity impact spatter is um, usually liquid or other material that comes from off of a body when it's impacted by something. Now, normally, as we normally think of that, that's a bullet from a gun. doesn't have to be. It's anything that makes, if you imagine a hammer hitting a head, a human skull, there would be that high-impact spatter coming off. Now, in the forensic world, normally, 90-some-odd percent of the time, we're talking about a bullet entering a body, and the majority of that spatter is made up of blood, although... If you can imagine, if it's a headshot, that spatter might consist of bone, also cerebrospinal spinal fluid from the brain cavity, and things like that. So it's it's material that 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 comes from a body after being impacted at a high velocity from something, either a blunt object or a bullet from a gun.
2: And how close to the body or the impact? would the person with that spatter be?
1: Oh, you'd have to be fairly close. It, it, there's a couple of factors that impact that, the distance you'd have to be from the person hit, and that's the velocity of whatever's hitting the body. Um, a bullet travels faster than a hammer, obviously, something like that. So the higher the velocity of whatever's impacting the body, the further that spray, or we call a mist, is going to travel. But it also dissipates very quickly. So it's, it's not very... It's not very hardy to begin with. This is a mist. It's, it's, um, you know, and so it, it doesn't travel that far, and it dissipates quickly. Um, so normally, the general overall term, and again, without taking other things into consideration, is we use 30 to 36 inches in the forensic world that, that you have to be within that distance. Now, really, sometimes you'd have to be even closer. Um, but usually, if you're outside of, you know, of about a three-foot range, you're probably not going to have that spatter on you.
0: What about if you are trying to assist in some sort of CPR or something like that? Would you, could you get the high impact spatter from that?
1: No, the spatter only happens at the point in time of the impact right at that point in time. That's when the spatter emanates from the wound and it dissipates very quickly. So if you're, Providing CPR, the only the only other thing that might happen is if someone aspirates. In other words, when they're exhaling and you're over them and they have a, a wound to the chest and you're trying to do a CPR, which isn't indicated on that kind of wound. But if someone's doing that and the person aspirates, uh, which means they exhale the foamy blood that's in there in their lungs, you might get that on you. But that a, fore, a good forensic examiner will be able to differentiate that 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 lung. Material coming out and uh, impact spatter if they if they examine it close enough that 's the only other that's the only way you might get something that looks like it it's that frothy foamy type material that that someone would cough up onto you but again that that would look different under a really in, uh, thorough forensic exam than actual spatter that comes from an impact
2: when I was on the Nancy Grace show with you, we talked about the guns that Wall Street Journal reported were used, which was a, a shotgun of some type and an AR, I believe, 15. And you found that interesting because you've got these long barrel guns. Why do you find that interesting when it comes into play the high-velocity impact matter? The
1: theory is, the first theory I was operating on was if Murdoch was near his wife and son at the, at the point that they were shot, then he might have been one of the shooters. But... Since both of the, the AR-15 and the, and the shotgun are call we call, we call long-barrel weapons as opposed to a pistol or a handgun or revolver, which is both pistols and revolvers are handguns, that means they're just held in one hand, as you can imagine. Um, long-barrel guns are obviously, with a long barrel, they're shoulder-mounted usually. You, you, you have to kind of brace yourself against it for the kickback, of, of, especially if you a shotgun. Um, so those long-barrel weapons, you have to be further away from someone to shoot them um, for a number of reasons. Number one, just to operate the weapon. Number two, to have some kind of stealth ability so the person doesn't see you aiming the gun at them. In, in the Murdoch, Murdoch case, what I understand is the, the reporting I read was the wife was shot in the back and then in the back of the head when she was down on the ground, and the son was shot in the chest and the head. To me, we always train you know two shots to, to the chest, one to the head, Kind of thing this is like a marksman thing it, it to me that remind those shot patterns indicate to me someone not necessarily an assassin but someone that's been trained in, in, in weapons and shooting at targets at least that are human like like human targets like cardboard or whatever um not not just a general hunter wouldn't do two to the chest one to
2: the head Not as just a person who's shooting deer wouldn't wouldn't fire that shot
1: right he wouldn't be pra- even practicing two to the chest, one to the head, I, I used to hunt deer, you know, you, you you shoot a deer target and you shoot towards the center of mass of the deer. Um, and so the, the, the shot patterns that they were killed with reminds me or indicates to me someone that's a little more professional and, and certainly a targeted assassination type thing. The spatter usually comes from a headshot. And if the wife was shot in the back and then she fell and then she was shot in the back of the head, her spatter would have been just into the ground. He wouldn't have got that on him. The son, if he shot in the chest and he shot in the head before he falls, that's much more likely to have spatter that's in the surrounding area. And particularly if he shot in the head from the front, which it sounds like from the reporting that he was, to me, it sounds like he walked them into the kill zone. If he, was, if he knew the assassins were lying in wait and he was walking them in, um, he would have been very careful where he stood, obviously, because he knew they were about to be shot. And if he was off to the side or into the rear inside of his son, a headshot from the front of his son would have propelled that impact spatter back into the sides. And so he would have been in the line. So my theory would be that that spatter comes from one person and it's probably the son. And then now they could, if they have enough spatter material, they can actually do a DNA if it's not, if it's not mixed up and contaminated with other material that was also there. But my guess would be that that, that spatter. Comes from the sun. Uh, see, well, there was
0: a Wall Street Journal article back from September that talks about the AR-15 and this blackout uh, 300 ammo that was used. Um, and interestingly enough, you look at the police report, they redact how many the ammo. They said there was ammo found, but the number was redacted. It was. It was very curious. I don't know why they would possibly redact the amount of ammo cartridges they found.
1: It's interesting because they did say, also, I read somewhere that one of the guns, and I don't know that they even said which, the AR or the shotgun, belonged to the Murdoch family. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. One of them, They that it's been reported that one of the guns belonged to the family, but but they it has not really been clarified which gun belonged to the family. It does seem that the AR... 15 was the one that was not recovered or turned over from for inspection, based on the police report.
1: They use very obviously very different ammunition, right? The the AR and the and the shotgun. Shotgun is a very the shotgun is like a sledgehammer, and the AR15 is more like you know a
2: surgical knife. Well, we heard Uh, there was one round of buckshot and one round of birdshot. I think they called it right. That would be out of the shotgun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that strike you as odd? There was two different, possibly two different versions of ammunition? Well, I mean,
1: yeah, it, it, it's a little odd. I mean, we used to, in the FBI, our, our load was slug, but I think sometimes you, you put a buckshot first. So the difference is buckshot is, um, so it's a, the amount and the size of the pellets that come out of the shot. So birdshot is more pellets come out and they're smaller. Buckshot is larger pellets and there's less of them obviously and then a slug is simply a slug it's one big piece of lead that flies out of that shotgun it's very devastating the smaller you go with the you know from buckshot to birdshot and then there's, then there's numbers of birdshot what number that goes lower and lower that means those the the, the pellets in there get smaller and if this, you know the smaller the pellet the more you can fit into a shell casing. So you have a spread on it. So yeah, it, 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 surprises me. Cause if I was, I hate to use that term, but if I was going to kill someone with a shotgun, um, I would, I would, and I knew I was going to do it from close range. I would certainly use slug because it's a, it's one big massive piece of lead that flies that shotgun and does a lot of damage quickly. Whereas buckshot and certainly birdshot, um, you know, it might not even kill the person, uh, buckshot probably would at close range, but, um, third shot not uh, so that that surprises me the mix and the fact that they weren't using slug ammunition in a shotgun surprises me
0: all this new evidence that has or reports that have come out this week I keep going back to there were two weapons and to me I've always thought that that meant two killers because it seems odd that one person would put down one weapon and then pick up another what what are your thoughts on that
1: no I agree with you I think that I think it it almost undoubtedly was two shooters and and if the reporting in fit news is true this week that he had that high impact spatter on him, i would say he wasn't he was not one of the shooters i was going on the assumption that he was one of the two shooters but if this reporting is correct my theory would be and i'm not privy to obviously the inside investigative files my theory based on the public reporting would be there were two shooters and
2: alex murdoch was not one of them the time of death ruled nine to nine thirty. And your experience is the time of death a thirty minute window. That seems awful short, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, it depends. Like, it would be odd for a medical examiner to to dictate that shorter window because their their science is just not that exact. Now, what we what we would normally do is take the medical examiner's window and and see if we could develop any other investigative evidence that could narrow that window. So like, for example, a lot of times a medical examiner will give you a last meal eaten in what time. So we know the person ate, you know, six hours ago. So they weren't dead 12 hours ago. Well, then if, if I know that, that they didn't, the body was found at a certain time, I can cut down that window even more. So the medical examiner usually gives you a wider window and then you can narrow that down. The medical examiner could give you a wider window and then, somebody can see the person alive at a certain point in time and that can narrow the window. So there, there are invested, there are two different ways to go about it. The medical examiner usually gives you a wider window because the science just isn't exact, that exact. And then you might have other investigative evidence that can help you narrow that window.
2: Like somebody made a phone call or something. Somebody like was that. seen yeah. or okay. yeah,
1: or some, or, you know, tracking on a cell phone or a, a GPS in a car as long as they were the one driving the car um, or in possession of the cell phone. Uh, yeah, yeah, you can you can do that and you can investigatively narrow that window. But it would be very odd for a medical examiner or coroner to give you that narrow a window. But it's not unheard of to take that wider window that the, the medical examiner gives you and be able to narrow it down with some investigation.
2: The crime scene was roped off. But there was some controversy over the fact that family members were allowed to go into the house after the murder. And some were saying that should have been part of the crime scene. So my question to you is, someone shot in a yard, there's a house, is it odd to allow people to go back into that house, relatives and family members? Or is a could a crime scene be really narrowed down to, I don't know, 30 yards or 40 yards and everything else is in fair in, in game?
1: The general rule that we used to follow, and I did crime scenes for 19 years, is you establish the crime scene as as wide and as large as you possibly can, reasonably can, and then you narrow it as you as you work it, because you can't do it the other way around. Because if you do a very if you rope off a very small area, anything outside that area gets contaminated pretty quickly. And by contaminated, I mean the press comes onlookers, neighbors, family members come and contaminate anything outside your perimeter. So a good practice is always make it as wide as possible, as big as possible. And then as in the first minutes or hours that you're working at sea, you realize, oh, we don't need it this big. Let's contract yeah. it a little bit. And you're okay then, because in still inside that water perimeter, nothing being contaminated. Uh, yeah. If you make it too small, you yeah. can't make it bigger later, because it's already been contaminated. Um, so, yes, the, be- the best practice is to make it as wide, Even if it ticks some people off and it makes some people uncomfortable, you know, that's just the way it is. I mean, because remember, we're sci- you know forensic scientists, we're, we have to preserve that seed, because you only get one crack at it when it's not contaminated. And so... Um, if it ticks people off, you you know, I used to hand family members off to, we had victim witness people that were trained in in dealing with family members so I could do my work. But in a case like this, certainly I would have might maybe made that a little wider. But one of the factors that infected this case throughout is the Murdoch family influence. And, you know, this was a powerful, well-known family. And dealing with a family like that in a local community is is makes it much more yeah. difficult um, to say you can't go in your house. And I can see that pressure coming to bear, particularly in something like this, where you're trying to establish a crime scene and say you can't go in your own house. I mean, these, mm-hmm. some of these people yeah. in this family were former prosecutors in that area. And so, yeah, I think that that's a contributing factor uh, or could be a contributing factor to how the crime scene was established is there is their influence and and it's tough. I mean, look, I've done it. I've run up against that. Family members get very upset, particularly when you know their their family members are, are deceased. And our analysis is always, you know, you're dealing with grieving family members. You don't want to look callous and you don't want to look unfeeling. But in the back of our minds, as investigators, is the family's right. always in the in the suspect pool, and so. You know, we don't know. Even if it's a missing child, you're dealing with a potential where a family member could be the perpetrator. And so you don't want to look like you're callous and you don't want to look like you're not sympathetic to a grieving family. But at the same time, you have to always in the back of your mind, it's always your suspect. pool. Who's in your suspect? And and so that in this particular case, I think that the Mm -hmm. better course would have been to establish a wider crime scene perimeter and then narrow it as you go along.
0: So now it's been over 10 months since the deaths of Maggie and Paul, and we still don't have any sort of forensic evidence that has come out to the public. Do you find this to be a long period of
1: time? No, I mean, there's a couple of different uh, phases of this stuff that goes on. And so when we collect it, obviously you have to collect it properly, and then you have to deliver to the laboratory. And then the laboratory has a certain hierarchy of testing that's done um, and examinations that done that's done so DNA tool marks firearms ballistic evidence all of that they work together and they have to be done in a certain sequence because just the carrying out of one exam could degrade the evidence so another exam might not be able to take place so what you try to do is you try to do the exams in sequence so that and and, and I don't know the sequences I'm telling you I, I know the lab personnel know, The the sequences that stuff has to be done so that it remains viable for future exams, different exams, because many different exams could be subject to the same piece of evidence could be subject to many different types of exams. And so you don't want the first exam ruining that piece of evidence for future exams. So there's a sequence, number one, there's a sequence. Number two is how much material you have. So sometimes, you know, a a particular exam might use up, say, blood or, or material like that that you're trying to get DNA out of. And so you might use all the material that you have and there's so no further exams can take place. So you have to be very careful about that. The other thing is, particularly with forensics, and I'm not saying that that's happened in this case, but I've seen it in other cases where new technologies are always developing and new ways of using existing technologies are always there's forensic science magazines that say, we, we use this tool over here that's been around for a while in this way and we're getting some good success. And so these things are always developing. It's a very fluid science. It's always improving and you know, just like computers are always getting better and stuff. And so it seems like every 18 months, something new comes around along in the forensic field where you can do different testing. I know like right now with the MVAC system, you we can get DNA material or material subject to DNA testing that five, 10 years ago we wouldn't have even collected that evidence because we thought you can't get DNA on of that but now with new technology you can. So it's, it's forever evolving. And so it doesn't, number one, it doesn't surprise me that it's taken this long um, to do it. it you know, in the inside of investigations, many, many different things impact the, the speed of investigations. Every case is different. This case in particular is so high profile. Usually high profile cases move slower because everyone's being super careful. Everyone's getting... Three different levels of approval because nobody wants to be the one that makes a mistake or approves something they shouldn't. So, even the bureaucratic processes slow down in a case like this because everybody wants to make sure all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted, uh, and everything is done correctly because nobody wants to be that guy at the OJ trial sitting yeah. in, 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 in with the whole country watching saying, I bagged this piece of evidence the
2: wrong way. Yeah, right. I put
1: it in, in, a, in a plastic bag instead of paper bag, you know, like that kind of yeah. stuff. And so, that's that's the, the the forensic nightmare you don't want to be so that tends to slow everything down. The other thing is, you know, and, and again I've gotten some flack on some places because I it's not that I'm unfeeling, but my job is not to, my job as an investigator was never to, to placate the public. My job was never to provide the public with information that they were thirsty for or the media. It's just it wasn't. My job was to Find the perpetrator responsible for this crime and find them in a way that I secure enough evidence to get a conviction. So that's my only objective, and that's the that's the objective that I owe all of my efforts to. Not telling the family members an update. Not doing now. Luckily, in the FBI when I worked there, we had a like as I said, particularly trained victim witness coordinator people who I can kind of tasked with keeping the family updated. I could tell that person what, as much as I thought they needed to know or could know, um, and then they could interface with the family. So I didn't have, that's one thing off of my plate, um, because I had enough to deal with with some of these complex investigations. So I never felt a responsibility to keep the public updated, no matter how you know, how voracious their appetite was in, in a particular case. because. Doing so could derail my investigation. The, the more information, my 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 theory was always, the, as little a, of my case gets publicly known, the better for me. The only re- reason I would ever release information inside an investigation was that it was strategically beneficial to my investigation. Wow. If I needed word to get out there among the public, because I might be trying to scare somebody out into the open or something, if there was a strategic investigative advantage, to releasing that information, then sure, I would do it. But if it wasn't, then I didn't think that it was my responsibility or obligation, certainly, just to keep the public advised of, of every step of my investigation. My only responsibility was, was making sure that I'm collecting the evidence properly, that it's going to make its way in front of a grand jury and ultimately a trial jury, and secure a conviction for the person responsible for committing the crime. As long as I focused on that, I was doing my job.
2: So the strategic, not necessarily in public statement, could you do, would there be strategic leaks to yes. press? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I exactly. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you always do it with a, with a, with a purpose, right? If we yeah. do this, then we're hoping that would happen. Uh, you do it sometimes just to, uh, like, generate tips. Like, we did yeah. we used to do, like, if the tip line got really slow and it's been a couple months and then we would kind of like, you know what, let's do an update. Let's go out and... Let's let's release. Let's see what we can release that's not too vital. That you know, yeah. not because some things you need to keep in private inside investigation for first for purposes that you might use later on, like false confessions. We're famous for it, right? Mm-hmm. If you release too much information, the more information released, the less the harder it's going to be to dif- differentiate a false confession. Oh yeah, because right. they know everything, right? So things like that, and and so, or to generate tips, you can just do a press release or have a presser. And that, that just stimulates because it gets back to the public again and it stimulates calls to the tick line. Um, so there are strategic reasons why, mm-hmm. uh, but those are the only really reasons. My reasons were, and the, look, I was a line level investigator. I got overruled lot. Like if my bosses felt like they needed to update the public because you know, they were, you know, the higher up you go in law enforcement, the more sensitive you are to politics and yeah. things like that, yeah. And I, I, I'm not saying that I was successful in every case, but that was always my approach. My approach was always, you know, uh, uh, just go after the perpetrator, focus on that and let other people handle the other stuff.
0: So before we let you go, I'm just curious, how did you decide to become an FBI agent?
1: My father, I was raised by a cop. My father was NYPD, a detective sergeant. My brother went into the NYPD, became a detective sergeant before he retired. Um, I was destined for law enforcement. I come
2: from a law <laughs> Yeah, you became that way. a fed, Don't, don't um, they like the uh, the the street cops <laughs> and the feds? I also in the shows, you know, They don't um, like each other.
1: Well, I went to law school, so I was a little ahead of the curve on that.
2: And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was a lawyer, and my actually
1: my dad is the one that ta- talked me into going to the feds and said because he was, you know, he had done. His career NYPD, and he had my brother in the NYPD, and you know he quite quite you know simply said the feds will treat you better. You will get more travel, it'll be more interesting. You'll travel the world, which I ended up doing. I lived in Europe, I worked in Europe for the FBI, wow. I worked in the Middle East for the FBI, I lived in South America, and and so the travel was there. The jobs were a little more interesting. You weren't confined to one city, and and, and I saw the world, uh, and and he was right. It was it was a it was a better, more varied career. I, you know, you take it with something like DEA and all you do is drugs your whole career or secret service and be, all you do is protection or counterfeiting your whole career. The FBI offered, you know, such a wide variety of things. I worked organized crime, the mafia in New York City, then I worked gangs, then I, I worked underwater for 19 years in the FBI and nobody even knows the FBI works underwater. And, no. stuff. and so, you know, that's yeah. that was a big part of my career. And I did two tours in Iraq with the FBI and wow, so, yeah, so it was a much more varied career, and it was, it was much more interesting, I think. Like, I love the NYPD. It's my family legacy, history, and stuff. But I, you know, I, my brother and I still joke about it, but um, <laughs> that, that, was, that, that was the road. That was the path that I took, and I don't regret it, you know, one bit.
2: I could talk to you like for hours, I said, man. I could talk <laughs> to you for tra- hours.
1: I travel the world. And like I said, I, I actually established the FBI's underwater forensic program. It didn't exist um, before really? 1998, and I was tasked with setting up the underwater forensic and underwater crime scene program in the FBI, which resulted in four dive teams. So New York, Miami, D.C. and L.A. all have FBI underwater forensic dive teams, wow. uh, which I led two of them. Yeah, I was the team leader on New York, and then I was the team leader when I retired in the L.A. Uh, dive team. Again, we you know, but my my as the L.A. dive team leader, my responsibility covered from the Mississippi River to the border of india and pakistan um and so <laughs> a I little bit everything weird. in that it's
0: a wide wide area
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And my, my counterpart in miami had the entire southeast of the united states and all of south america, Central south america. Wow. so um you know we travel the world and wherever we were needed we would we would go and we would put boats and planes on a big air force plane and they would fly us where we needed to go and we'd get out and get in the water and, and prosecute underwater crime
2: scene Mostly. now you've gone all hollywood on us bobby
1: <laughs> now i writer yeah now i'm like well because you know I'm having knee surgery soon i had sh- shoulder surgery last year it was a very physical it was a very yeah. physical career especially on the dive team for 19 years it was a lot of you know throwing big tanks up on your shoulders and and, and carrying stuff and um And now I'm paying the price. So now I can, now I
2: chose a second career where I don't have to be as physical. My <laughs> writer's cramp. Down. Yeah, a little. A, anyway, yeah, yeah. Bobby, this has been cool. I definitely want to do it again at some point of your game. Absolutely. All right, sure. man. Bobby, thanks a lot. Thank thanks you so much. Me. This is thanks, really Bobby.
0: super interesting.
2: Yeah. Anytime. Thanks.
0: So we had originally planned to do kind of a deep dive into Maggie and Paul's death on this episode based on listener uh, requests. And then with the breaking news, we had to kind of pivot, and you had this great opportunity with this FBI agent, which I thought was fantastic. But we are still planning to do this episode. So we'd love for you to kind of go to our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, and tell us your theories and motives and all of that.
2: And we will uh, discuss it on the next episode. Again, unless there's some breaking news that uh, comes up. You can also email me, Matt Harris Podcast at gmail.com Again, look little credit to Fitz News for their stories this week and we will talk soon. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis and spins mean everything. Now,
1: you want to get mixed up in the family
2: business. Introducing The Godfather at Chabacasino.com Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday,
1: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic. And now each week, I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows.